We've all been there, in the middle of a job, everything going smoothly, until boom, you're missing a part. United Refrigeration is your one-stop shop for all your refrigeration needs. Use your computer or smartphone to go to www.uri.com at any time of day or night to check stock on your favorite brands, such as Copeland, Sporlin, Carlisle Compressors, Danfoss, Emerson CPC Boards and Sensors, Carell, Hussman Parts, and Ketotherm. United Refrigeration Inc. is home to these brands and many more. Looking for information on refrigerant conversions or refrigerant banking? Quick access links on the homepage can get you to the information you need. All approved accounts are able to see live to the minute inventory and pricing. Product not in stock at your local branch? No problem. Use the nearby stock feature to find a local branch that does have what you need. Are you looking for a branch address, phone number, or after hours number? That's all available as well. Just click on the branch locator and search for your local branch. Have a model number and looking for a replacement part? www.uri.com forward slash ARP has a vast list of quick pick replacement parts. Just search for the model number of the equipment you're working on and click the replacement parts tab. If you don't have an account, click the register button and we'll have you online in no time. With more than 400 locations in North America, each United Refrigeration branch is fully stocked for immediate pickup. Our branch employees have in-depth technical knowledge so we can help you get what you need when you need it. Visit your local store or www.uri.com forward slash ARP today. United Refrigeration Inc. has all your solutions down cold. John, how can you always have the right TV for the right application without carrying hundreds of valves on your truck? You can carry the hundreds of valves on a trailer behind your truck. That's too funny. That would work, but how are you going to do that? Maybe there's an easier way. You can use Sporlin's interchangeable cartridge style Type-Q and Type-BQ uh, TEVs. Type-Q is a conventional design and Type-BQ is a balanced port TEV. Well, come on, I need easy. How easy is it? Uh, easy is one, two, three. And it serves thousands of unique applications. So what's the process? How do I put this together? First, you select the thermostatic element assembly. Then you select the body that you need. Then you select the right size cartridge for the application to get the proper capacity TEV for your application. And then I guess it should also be said you want to actually assemble those to a single valve. That'd probably be a good idea. Indeed. These easy to select and assemble valves mean you're always carrying the right valve for the right job then. If folks want to learn more, what do they do? Uh, you can go to sporland.com and find more information on the Type Q and BQ thermostatic expansion valves. I guess that's Jim and John for Sporland signing off. Good evening, guys. Welcome to another episode of Advanced Refrigeration Shorts. This is going to be me solo again. Brett's on vacation this week, so... Today we're going to be talking about something that gets overlooked quite often and leads to a lot of issues on racks that cause a lot of energy consumption and cause a lot of headaches for service guys. And we're going to talk about balancing defrost schedules and loads. So when I say balancing defrost schedules, guys, what I'm talking about is 
taking the defrost scheduler rack and of the store and making it the most efficient possible. Now, a couple reasons we want to do this. <laughs> We're trying to balance out the load in the rack so we don't have huge loads going in at the same time and causing short cycling and causing, when they come out of defrost, causing the rack to load up. We want to try to impact as little as possible with the rack when something's in defrost. And two, we want to try to impact the store as little as possible. You don't want a bunch of cases going in defrost at the same time. It's going to cause stuff to condensate. It's going to cause people to freak out. So you want to kind of balance this out. And it all comes back down to energy and how the rack runs. So when I'm looking at this and I see a rack where I'm having like all kinds of suction spikes and I'm having low spikes and then high spikes and it's just all over the place and I have compressors that are, you know, in the middle of the night I'm shutting down and, and then I'm, you know, spiking back up like a half hour later. You know, I'm, I'm going to start looking at my defrost schedule. Anytime I'm like commissioning a rack, I'm going to spend quite a bit of time trying to get this defrost schedule right. <coughs> Now, the way I start is I'm looking at this and I'm looking at it from a perspective of, okay, I need to look at all the loads that I have on this rack. I need to look at what cases I have, what defrost times I have. So first things first, I'm going to go through the controller. A lot of the times I find, you know, guys have been in there and they've added defrost and they've added time. And they've, you know, tweaked this and tweaked that. Well, I mean, once you start getting into, like, hot-ass defrost and frozen food doors and stuff like that, when you start adding defrost a day, I mean, generally it's a band-aid. There's something going on, you know, deeper. I mean, yeah, there is some electric defrost cases that, you know, may need a second defrost every once in a while. It's just with the, with the humidity and everything else. But you need to try to avoid it. So what I'll do first is... I'll kind of just, you know, jot down all the defrost times in all the cases and see what I have. I made a little Excel sheet, just, you know, popped everything in there. I made the times of the day, you know, in half hour increments at the top. So I go from, you know, midnight to, you know, mid midnight again in half hour increments. And then I'll list the circuits down the sides. Okay. I'll list the circuits and then I'll list the BTUs next to the circuits. So... Two reasons I do this. So I list the BTUs down there so that way I could see what the loads are and then what the the load impact is to the rack. Because your larger circuits, you're gonna to want to go by themselves. If you can get two smaller circuits in defrost or three smaller circuits in defrost and equal one of those larger circuits, that's how you're gonna to want to pair up your defrost. Let's be honest. I mean, the days of having no overlapping defrost are pretty much gone. Some of these cases require, you know, six defrost, eight defrost. I mean, I've even seen Kaiser warranty cases with 18 defrost a day. So, um, that, that's something you guys got to look out for. And then just, just make sure that the you're kind of going, starting at the manufacturer spec and tweaking from there. I mean, if you got 18 defrost today and you have multiple lineups with that, you're going to have overlaps. So trying to plan this schedule accordingly 
is going to be the best bet. So what I'll do is I'll look at the whole Excel sheet and my, my list of my, uh, my cases and BTUs. And I'll pick what I could pair up. <clears throat> so I'll pair up my smaller loads together. That way they defrost at the same time. I'll pick my bigger loads so they defrost by themselves. And then I'll go through and I'll make my schedule. And I'll tweak it all together. Now, if you have Ultrasight, it's nice because you could see all the times together. When, when you're all done, you could print your schedule out. If you have Microthermal, this is cake. Because what you could do on Microthermal is you could put the loads in on the circuits. And you could basically drag and drop your bar graph uh, for your defrost schedule. So you could say... Okay, I want no more than, you know, 30% of the rack and defrost at the same time or 20%. And you could move around circuit times and balance the defrost that way. Now, what I will do to make this work and make it work better. So say um, you have 10 cases going into defrost or 10, 10 circuits. Okay, so say you may have an overlap of like 20 minutes on a circuit. I'll move one defrost time 20 minutes if I have to. I'll, I'll take that defrost time and move it 20 minutes. It's not going to affect the case if it's a half hour, 20 minutes. So say if it's six times a day and you're starting at midnight and say the third defrost starts 20 minutes later or 20 minutes before, not going to affect anything. But it has a huge effect on the rack. If you can kind of offset that, so you have one case going into defrost and one case coming out. So that way, you know, you have a case going in, case coming out. That way you're not, you're not shocking the rack because you have a case going into defrost. You see, so you're taking load away. You have a case coming out of defrost. You're adding load back to the rack. So there's no need to cycle. <clears throat> if you balance this correctly and you offset these times, you could easily avoid all these i mean you're gonna to have to play with the schedule and when we come down to co2 this is extremely important because you want to keep that rack as steady as possible and if you don't have a balanced defrost schedule and a nicely set up defrost schedule you're going to have problems you're going to have cycling issues and other issues so you want to try to offset that so if i have bigger loads going into defrost make sure i have you know, plenty of other stuff not in defrost. And then when I have bigger loads coming out of defrost, I will shed that by, you know, bringing the other loads into defrost, maybe like a minute or two before the, that big case comes out. So that way the rack doesn't have time to stage down yet, but it also has time to, you know, bring that, that circuit on and not, not shock the rack. Now, when we get down into the actual like hot gas stuff so you want to do hot gas defrost in the middle of the night generally i start from 10 p.m and on forward until like six or seven in the morning the reason for this is it is cheaper and more efficient to hot gas defrost in the middle of the night the reason this is is because you're artificially raising that head pressure somewhat by if you have a defrost differential valve, an LDR, you're increasing that pressure. So that 20 pound pressure drop or 30 pound pressure drop, it's still cost energy. It's not free, it still costs energy. And it puts extra strain on the rack. 
So you want to do this during the middle of the night, especially for glass doors. You're never going to avoid walk-ins. You're going to have to, you know, hockey ass defrost to walk in during the day, but you want to avoid doing cases. The other reason is it keeps the store from, you know, freaking out that, you know, a case gets warm for, you know, the 50 degrees or whatever. It keeps that from happening because it's in the middle of the night. Nobody's seeing it. There's not customers, you know, opening doors while something's in defrost. It's all taken care of in the background in the middle of the night. So I will generally start at like 10 p.m. You know, when everything cools down, I will start hot gas defrosting cases. Glass door cases are generally 20 minutes. I mean, you shouldn't really need more than 20 minutes to defrost a hot glass door case. If you start getting into 30-minute defrost and it's way more than the manufacturer says, you got a problem. You need to figure out the problem with the cases, whether it's a piping problem, whether it's some kind of other problem, because this is costing you a ton of money to defrost that case. The longer you have that in there and the less liquid you're making, the more stress you're putting on the entire system. So you need to, you need to make sure that hot gas defrost is working efficiently and properly. Generally, most glass door cases only need one hot gas defrost a day. So if you're defrosting more than that, I mean, generally I'll come in and I'll take them all out and we'll see how it runs. I mean, and then I'll go by, you know, circuit by circuit basis. If I have one circuit icing up and I mean, there may be an issue with the cases. Are they piped wrong? Were they converted from hot electric to hot gas? I mean, is there an issue there? But generally you should be able to get away with one hot gas defrost a day on glass doors. Coffins generally are one, two. I mean, walk-ins are like three to four, depending on where they are in the traffic. I mean, you may have to do five or six, depending on like a bakery freezer where they, you know, can't seem to shut the door no matter what chain they're at. So that's a huge deal is taking that defrost schedule and getting rid of all those overlapping defrosts, all those extra defrosts, because that's costing a ton of energy. Just doing that, you could save a massive amount of energy on a rack and a massive amount of wear and tear and a massive amount of cycling. So the heart of this defrost schedule, this defrost schedule is so detrimental to the rack if it's not set up properly. You don't want overlapping hot gas defrost. I mean, you want to avoid that at all costs. I mean, we've had a couple situations here where we've had so many circuits on a rack, it's inevitable, but we generally have enough load. And if you're going to do it, you need to pick two smaller circuits for it to hot gas at the same time. You don't want to... You don't want overlapping hot gas defrost. So you want to avoid that at all costs. So you want to try to balance that schedule out where you have no overlapping hot gas defrost. Overlapping electric defrost is less of a problem. You you want to try to avoid it too because, I mean, it's still KW draw. And then when that defrost comes out, you're going to have a massive load on the rack. So... You want to try to avoid that too because, I mean, you got to figure you're going to have cases that are 50 degrees, 60 degrees. You want to try to avoid that because when that load comes out, you're going to have hot, you know, hot suction vapor and a ton of pressure coming back. So you want to try to avoid that. You That's why you want, if you have to have two overlapping, try to stagger them by like 10, 15 minutes. So that way one comes on and the other one comes on. You know, after that one's already pumped, pumped out the suction line and 
is coming down. Uh, let's talk about bigger coils. Like say you're at like a Costco, like a BJ's, a big wholesale club. Okay, Sam's Club. Sam's doesn't do this, but like Costco does. A lot of their older racks have pump-out solenoids on them. So they'll have a half-inch or three-eighths solenoid around the CDS valve or main solenoid. Now, the reason they do this is, and I find these not working all the time, and they cause a lot of issues. The reason they do this is because when that's, when that say that two and an eighth solenoid opens up, I mean, that is a lot of pressure and a lot of load in the rack. So it causes a couple things. You could flood back because, let's say you're, you're going through a drip, it's all that, all that vapor has been sitting in that coil for like five minutes in that freezer it's got three other coils in there running and it's zero in the freezer well it's gonna it's gonna condense into a liquid and once it does it's gonna come back to the rack like a, like a banshee and could cause you to flood out the second thing is it's a lot of load so you figure three four hundred feet of two and an eighth line at I don't know 90 hundred pounds of pressure maybe 200 pounds of pressure sitting in there, that is a ton of hot gas coming back. So you want to try to avoid that. So what they do is they use a timer when it calls for refrigeration and the pump out's done, it's going to energize this timer and the normally open of the of the timer contacts energizes this, this pump out solenoid, this half inch line. So what it's doing is it's pumping out around the main... It goes around the main liquid lines or the main suction stop or EPR and it's pumping out all that vapor in there. So its goal is to try to pump that thing down. You may need five to seven minutes to pull this off, depending on how how much the, the run is and how much vapor is in there. In the summertime, it's going to take longer. This is imperative for this to work properly because once that pumps out, you want it to pump out completely down to suction pressure. So you may have to time this. I mean, time it in the middle of summer with the highest pressure you're going to get and see how long it takes that, to pump that coil down to suction pressure. You want that thing to be 100% pumped out for when that thing energizes and turns back on. That way, you have no problems. Because if you pump that thing out, you're going to keep the rack from uh, just like slamming all the compressors on and slamming them all off. That's why you'll see, like if you look at graphs, I mean, you'll see your suction temp come way down low. For maybe two, three minutes, four minutes, it comes way down low, almost to flooding back, and your saturation temperature at the same time shoots way up because your suction pressure gets overloaded. It brings all the compressors on, it spools up the controller, and then it tries to work to pull it down. It pulls it down real quick, and then we end up overshooting all the other valves in a rack slam down because we overshoot. We overshoot and we end up flooding out and or we end up going into a vacuum almost or hitting our low pressure switches and we end up shutting the rack down and or short cycling and we end up with high cycle counts. Imagine doing that, you know, 10 times, 15 times a day. 
So that's why those pump-out solenoids on larger circuits are important. Now Today's episode is sponsored by the RefRush Shield RDP Series Differential Pressure Monitors from Westermeyer Industries, now available for transcritical CO2 systems in addition to other common pressures and refrigerants. When the filter element of your coalescing oil separator is contaminated, it can hurt your system's performance and efficiency. But how do you know when it's time to replace that filter? Wait too long to replace, and you could end up with a nasty filter blowout. But replacing too often can be a waste of time and money. The answer is installing a differential pressure monitor. The RDP series differential pressure monitors, including the new transcritical CO2 model, are available now from Westermeyer Industries. To find out more information, email sales at westermeyerin.com. That's W-E-S-T-E-R-M-E-Y-E-R-I-N-T-C-O-M. Now, we're going to talk about post-defrost with stepper valves. So, this is a great thing with stepper valves. So, with stepper valves, you really don't need that solenoid. With stepper valves, you could put a post-defrost percentage in the valve. So, Emerson has this, Microthermal has it, Danfoss has it. So what you do is when this thing goes to come out of defrost, you could tell it you could only open the ESR so many percent for so many minutes. Now with microthermal, it's great because you can step it down. So you could have like four or five steps, and you could say for two minutes you're going to be at at four percent. For you know four minutes you're going to be at ten percent, and then for five five minutes you're going to be at say 20%, you could step in stages. See, Emerson is, with the E2, it's it's one stage. So, like, you could put a pull-down percentage to 30% for 30 minutes, and it'll stay in that pull-down percentage to the cases at temp. couple reasons you want to do this, okay? So, it keeps that ESR from opening up 100%, okay? So, it keeps that from, you know, overshooting case set point and the PID of the ESR getting all spun up because... It was in defrost and it's all spun up because the case is warm. It limits that valve so it can't get the PID all spun up. The second thing it does is it takes that and keeps that load from hitting the rack. So I will generally start like at like 20 to 30 percent on ESRs, and that way when they come out, they don't overload the rack. It's nice that you could do that because. It keeps you from, you know, hitting that set point and then overloading. So you you hit that thirty percent. It opens up post defrost, hits that thirty percent, and then it doesn't allow it to affect the rack as much. I mean, you're still going to have that load coming back to the rack, but it's going to be a little bit slower than a valve opening a hundred percent and the just just slamming the rack. So the next part of this is, especially with like CO two, is post defrost stepper valve control so this is in just about every single case controller i've seen you could limit your stepper valve or pulse valve uh, post defrost dixel has it it's post defrost pull down so what you're going to do on that is it's the same setting as is the esr basically it's going to limit how far that valve could open for a time period or until the case gets down to temp after defrost. This is a underutilized thing in every single case controller. Uh, most customers don't utilize it and from a tuning aspect it's a great tool because I'm generally going to take the valves down lower 
than what they have in set four. A lot of times they seem to set like 85%. I may go 40%, 50%. I'll look at what the graph is on the valve percentage. So if I graph the average valve percentage and it's 20% open, I'm going to limit that valve to 20% post-defrost. Yeah, the case is going to pull down a little bit slower, but I mean, it should pull down within a half hour. And the reason you want to do this is because say you're on a CO2 rack with cage controllers. If you slam those cases down to temp, they come down to temp quick, but it ends up spiking. You end up, you end up starting up compressors or after that, you end up stopping compressors. You get this cycling and you end up getting hunting valves all over the place because now nobody's using EPRs really and you end up affecting the suction pressure on every other case. So once you do that, say you spin up a compressor and you drive the suction pressure down because you know your load came up and it came right back down. Well, now all the valves shut in the store and more compressors are shutting off. So this is where like a balanced defrost schedule and then a balanced post post pull down is super important. You wanna you wanna avoid that you know loading up the rack. This is even more important on the medium temp side because the medium temp is uh, is seeing the most fluctuations on the high pressure side. If you have a lot of defrost issues and a lot of like cycling, even cycling on the low temp, it's going to affect the high pressure valve operation and your flash tank stability. Flash tank stability has a lot to do with defrost scheduling and pull down percentages because if you can't keep that you if you can't get that steady that's one of the first things we we tune and and tweak is getting that defrost schedule and the pull downs taken care of and a lot of times that takes care of our rack cycling issues and it takes care of other issues with the rack to keep it from to keep it from having cycling issues because we're we're limiting that load to keeping it from you know, slamming on and off. So guys, that's where, you know, just paying attention when you're doing defrost schedules. I know a lot of guys don't do it, but a lot of independents, you know, you, you get a lot of play with it. Don't just, you know, add a defrost here, add a defrost there, or if you're adding a case, you need to look at the whole defrost schedule. I mean, it's very important because I know a lot of guys like, we'll just throw a case in and whatever it's say, you know, six defrost a day and starts at midnight. Well, there may other already be like seven cases starting at midnight. So doing a little bit of homework, it takes a little bit of time. I generally will keep the Excel sheet and you know I'll, I'll print it out and I'll leave it at the store or I'll save it in my Dropbox so I have it with all the loads on there. I mean, it takes 20 minutes to input all this data. Once you make this Excel sheet, you know you, you put the times of day at the top, your number of circuits. I mean, it takes no time to, just to you know, pop in A1 is 10,000 BTUs, A2 is 20,000 BTUs. A3 is 40,000 BTUs. Takes no time. Then you just, you know, mark it on the Excel sheet with, with an X when it's in defrost. And then you can kind of see and like move the X's around and then go to the controller and then pop those times in the controller. With the E2, I generally will use the distributed time method, the start time, and then just tell it how many defrost it has. If I'm doing a schedule from scratch, so Say if I'm doing one from scratch and I have the loads in front of me, I'll make my little Excel sheet, kind of look at it, be like, okay, well, I'm going to start A1 at midnight, then A2, maybe 1 o'clock because it's a bigger load, then I'll go to A3 
3 at I'll say like 12:30, it's another smaller load. So I'll stagger stagger it out. So I got one coming in, one going out, one coming in, one going out. Especially with hot gas, I do that all the time in the middle of the night. I may give it 10 minutes in between, 20 minutes in between to have that pull down time, pull down percentage. So I don't super overload the rack, but like I generally will go one in, one out, one in, one out. That way I have load coming back and I'm going to increase the load in the rack a small bit, but I'm also going to use that energy to defrost the next case. So it keeps the rack loaded up enough where the next case will be able to defrost. That That's my thought process on it. You know, I keep a steady higher load and then I'll be able to defrost the next case. I'm not like slamming it down and taking it off because I'm still dropping a case out, but I'm also bringing another case in defrost and letting it defrost. So that way I constantly have that load in the beginning. I'm not like slamming the suction way down and cycling a bunch of compressors off after something pulls down and all the EPRs tweak back. And then I go through a case and defrost. And I took even more load off the rack. And now I throw something in hockey ass defrost and lose my load. I mean, I'm going to have a really poor defrost. So that's why I want to try to have one going in, one coming out. That way the rack kind of loads up a little bit. And then instead of throwing that heat to the condenser or raising the head pressure, I'm throwing it to the cases to try to defrost. And then balancing out your times. You're, you don't want to have too much defrost time and you want to make sure your termination's working. A lot of termination stuff gets over overlooked and missed and I want to make sure my terminations are working. So make sure your terminations are in the proper locations and they're set properly. Is if you're over defrosting, you're wasting energy and all you're doing is affecting the rack and or making defrost problems worse because if you start, you know, condensating, you know, frost and stuff in the case and condensating in the case, I mean, you're going to have stuff all over the product. It's going to make the water droplets get on fan blades. It makes things out of balance. It just causes nonstop issues. So you don't want to over defrost. Defrost termination is an overlooked thing and often miss thing when customers are building stores. If they don't have termination, they are running an inefficient defrost. Now, when I'm doing my termination, generally, I will set a minimum defrost time 70% of what the, the defrost should be. So if it's a so if it's like a 30-minute defrost, I'll go like 20 minutes on my term. So that way it, it has to run a minimum of 20 minutes. The reason I do this is because if you have a bad term sensor, say the term sensor fails and it reads like 200 degrees, if you didn't have that minimum set like that, it would kick you out of defrost after after like the bare minimum, say two minutes, if it's if it's Emerson. So your minimum was two minutes, it would kick you out of defrost for two minutes. Well, you're not gonna defrost. Now you got a nice stiff case. This way, you're still gonna defrost. Maybe not the best, it'll ice up eventually, but hopefully a service guy or there's an alarm set up in the customer's, you know, trending that's gonna catch this before the case ice is up, you know, it's going to say, Hey, you know, this, this term sensor is reading this high and there's an issue here and roll a service guy out there to fix the sensor or the wiring or the cable before the case ice is up. So that's why I always go with that minimum defrost time. Same thing with medium temp cases. I always go a minimum defrost time and I may go a slightly higher termination because here's a problem with terminating with medium temp cases. You're going to be using 
the discharge air sensor. Well, the middle of the case always defrosts faster than the ends because the end of the coil where the TXV is, is always going to be slightly colder. So generally when they're defrosting, you know, you get that you get that air pocket that punches through the middle and you'll get that warm air coming through. Well, it has to work its way to the sides. So you may need a few more minutes or a few more degrees for that coil to completely defrost in the sides. So that's one thing to watch out for in medium temp cases. Like say if the termination is 45, I might make it 48. Give it a few more degrees and let it defrost. And then same thing for, uh, for the uh, min times. The only cases that I, I severely disagree with the defrost times on, like the Hussman ID cases, they say they're 20 minutes. Like they flat out don't work in a humid environment. Like if it's slightly humid in the store, they ice up. So like those cases need 30 minute defrost. So just pay attention to that. I mean, look at and watch it and see what it's terming at, what it's getting up to in defrost. If you're only getting up to 40 minutes, I mean, or 40 degrees or 45 degrees, it's not enough. Get that case at the 48 and let it let it terminate for medium temp. So that's one thing for like checking out defrost stuff. You're just going to have to watch and see how it does to run the most efficient. Because if you're not defrosting cases all the way, I mean, eventually you're going to ice up and that's just as detrimental as running too many defrosts on a rack. So we're, we're, we're balancing this fine line, guys, of trying to keep this schedule the most efficient and the best for the rack and then trying to keep the cases from not icing up. So more defrost costs more money. It doesn't matter if it's medium temp, hot gas, or off time. It doesn't matter. When you put something in defrost and you add defrost, it costs money. It's not free because it uses KW when it has to pull down and it affects the rack. So no defrost is free. It doesn't matter if it's hot gas, electric, you know, reheat, glycol reheat. It all costs money. So having this defrost schedule balanced saves KW, saves energy, and it takes load and wear and tear off the rack. The heart of the cycling issue st starts with a defrost schedule because if that load isn't steady at the rack, the whole thing is going to is going to cycle very poorly. So that's my t th my thoughts and my uh take on balancing defrost schedules. Thanks for listening guys.